Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be uh, beginning in verse 18. Matthew 21, 18. Matthew's the first gospel or the first book in what is called the New Testament. Bible is divided into the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Matthew's the first there. We're in chapter 21. We've only been in Matthew for maybe a couple of months. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it's like a year now. I'm sorry. I'm learning. Matthew 21, we're going to pick up in verse 18. But as before we pick up in verse 18, just a couple things to keep in mind. Chapter 21 marks the beginning of what is called Passion Week popularly, which is the last week of Jesus's earthly life. And so the rest of the rest of Matthew from 21 on is dealing with just a week's amount of time uh, where this, whereas the first several chapters, 21 chapters was dealing over three years. And so um, this is, this is significant here. Chapter one, 21 begins with Jesus's tri- triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey, as was prophesied by Zechariah 500 years earlier, Zechariah prophesied that Jesus or the Messiah would come into the, into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the crowd was crying out as he came in Hosanna, Hosanna, which we knew means God save us. God deliver us. That was the cry of the people. And they're throwing their cloaks down before him and cutting down palm branches before him as the, the Messiah was now entering the capital And this was a cry that really had significant to to every Jew that was there because the Jews would in Psalm 118, I believe uh, it was a cry that that the Messiah would be the one who would come and deliver them. Uh, They were under the oppression of the Romans. And so they were looking for a physical deliverance. And so there's an aspect that the Messiah who would come would not only deliver them physically, but truly, if you look at the scriptures spiritually as well, And although Matthew doesn't record it as people are crying out, Hosanna, as Jesus is making his way down the Mount of Olives into the East gate of Jerusalem, the the Pharisees intervene and they just tell Jesus, Hey, tell your disciples to stop this. Tell all these followers of you to knock this off. Let's do it now. (laughs) And Jesus responds. He turns around and says, Hey, if they don't do this, even the stones themselves would cry out. In other words, this is inevitable. This is the moment that was prophesied that the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, the King of God's people would be coming into Jerusalem. And then according to Matthew's account, Jesus goes directly into the East gate of the city, goes into the temple and finds the same nonsense going on on the, in the temple grounds as he did at the very beginning of his ministry, where you had people buying and selling and exchanging money, and they were ripping off the people and doing so. So basically the priesthood, the ones who were supposed to be facilitating worship, were now making a, a, a money, a way of making exorbitant amount of money off of people who were traveling great distances coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus just would have none of it. And so he came in and he turned over the money changers tables and the people who were selling pigeon pigeons being the sacrifice that was sold to, you know, was acceptable for the poor people to give. And he flipped them over and he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. It's the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. And his heart was broken over this monetization of the church or of you know, Judaism at that point. And then he began healing the lame and the sick. They started coming to him as soon as he cleansed the temple and he's in there. That's what he's doing. Well, as you can imagine, Matthew 21 then tells us the Pharisees were upset. The leadership 
And the Pharisees were upset about the children in the temple as the children are, are mimicking the things they heard people saying. They were crying out Hosanna. And so the kids were then saying Hosanna in the temple courts. And, and they said, Jesus, do you, do you hear what's going on? Do you know what you're doing? And Jesus says, yes, I absolutely know what's doing, what's going on. And he quotes a Psalm and says, listen, out of the mouth of babes comes praise. And so basically the picture pain painted here by Matthew so far, far is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one that was supposed to come and he officially comes when he's supposed to come, how he's supposed to come. And he enters the city. But what happens is the spiritual shepherds, the ones in charge of the spiritual health of the people, the ones that are supposed to be ushering in this moment, facilitating it, teaching people towards this, leading it to people towards it, making them aware of the things that God had said about the Messiah. They were the ones actually in opposition to Jesus. And they knew the prophecies, they knew the scriptures, but they were hard hearted and they were blind and they were leading people in hard heartedness towards God and blindness towards God in, in the way that they were interacting with their greed and their hearts and their outward uh, superficial religiosity, but inward darkness, this hypocrisy, by the way, we all struggle with that. You know, people say, I hate the church because it's full of hypocrites. Like where else are we supposed to go? Like, Lord, help us, you know, but we don't want to live in that hypocrisy. We're crying out for God to change us. Amen. Amen. And so this is what was going on in the leadership. And this is what was going on in the people. And we're going to see this play out in the remaining of the chapters of chapters of Matthew, which is focused on that last week. Jesus then leaves the Pharisees in verse 17. So that was a pretty big first day there. Wouldn't you say a little bit going on a little confrontation and he leaves and he goes to the outskirts of Jerusalem, which is kind of a sit inside of, inside of a bowl there. And there's a hill around the side of it. And there's a couple cities around there, just like two miles away. He goes to Bethany. That's where uh, Lazarus was, who he just resurrected and Mary and Martha. And so he's there. And then it's the next morning as we pick up in verse 18. So with that recap, verse 18, it says, Matthew 21, 18 says in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. The son of God, yet the son of man, he's hungry. He wants some breakfast and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again in the fig tree withered at once. What's this all about? Why did Matthew pop this in here at this point? That's a good questions to ask. It seems out of place. It seems weird. Now, Mark 11 tells us that the reason that the fig tree wasn't bearing figs is because it wasn't the season for figs. Okay. So we, we, we know that it wasn't the season yet. Nevertheless, there was a tree. Jesus was hungry. He came to it and there was no fruit. But the reason that Jesus cursed the fig tree was not because he was hangry. You know, <laughs> he wasn't upset because he didn't get his figs, fig breakfast. Then, you know, he's the superpowers to crush the tree. That wasn't it. He was painting a spiritual picture. The spiritual picture is what was being painted. The point is that God had come to his vineyard. He had come for the harvest and he found no fruit, all leaves, no fruit. He found religiosity, but the people's hearts were not towards God. And that started with the leadership and it went down to the people. Yes, there were people who loved him and followed him. And there were the poor and all these types of people were following. But as a general, as a nation, as, as, most of the leadership, they were hardened towards the Messiah. They were religious at best. And he was coming to them. 
He was looking for fruit and there was none. They should have had it. They should have been ready. And he wept over Jerusalem. It says in the other chapters at, the, at this point or right around this time, he's weeping he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, had you known that this was the time appointed for you, but you know, you weren't willing, you weren't ready. Uh, you know, you, you, you killed the prophets and now here the sun is coming and now you're going to kill him too. Jesus knew what he was walking into. So there's the sadness. If you remember back in Matthew three, John the Baptist is preparing the way. Flip back to Matthew chapter three. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. The one who was sent right before the Messiah would come. He's the one who's calling out for everybody to get ready. And he's preaching a stern yet grace filled message to the people who claim to be the people of God. This message would not fly in American churches today or in, let alone anywhere else in John in Matthew chapter three, it's in verses one through three. It says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what he was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now these are all, a lot of these people are very religious people and they're coming out to see John in the wilderness, who's not your typical pastor. And he's not trying to be cool by wearing camel's hair and eating locusts. He's not like, you know, he's got the $500 shoes and he's driving the motorcycle into the church auditorium and all this stuff. Look at me. I'm strange. I'm different. God is cool. Can't you be cool too? No, he was like, he was an outcast. He was poor, probably just had camel's hair coat and he was eating locusts because I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's on the locust diet. Who knows? But he's crying out. And he says to the people, repent means turn in your thinking, in your hearts. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's coming to you. The kingdom of God. It's God's way of thinking, God's way of doing things, God's way of living. And it's and it's personified in a person, in the king, in the son, his rule, his dominion, his reign, his heart, his way. It's at hand. It's coming. He's here. Get ready. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way, make his path straight. And he's there quoting a prophet from the old Testament. So he's crying out. He's crying out old Testament prophecies. He's saying, this is the point. Everybody in Israel, you know, this get ready. He's almost here. So the message from God to the Jews was repent in particular. It was also directed to many of their spiritual leaders. We know that because if you keep reading verse seven, check it out. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is the political elites, the religious elites, the teachers of Israel. When he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, Oh, so glad you came here. How can I relate to you? What did he say to them? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's pretty direct. And then what does he say in verse eight? Bear what? Bear fruit. In keeping with repentance. Make your, if you say that you're following God and you are ready for the Messiah, then your life should actually show it. Bear fruit. If you have a good tree, if you have a tree, it's going to show in what it does and what it says and how it acts and how it lives, right? There's going to be a change that happens. There it is. Bear fruit. God was looking for this fruit in the people and in particular in the leadership. And when he came to them, what did he find? 
no fruit, all leaves, all religion. And this grieved the heart of God. It grieved the heart of God. It broke his heart. You know, when we gather here and we gather as a people, do you think God's, you know, it's about the numbers. It's about, oh man, I walked with a great feeling, you know, or check, check, check. He wants to come among us as spirit to be here and there to be fruit. How many of you love walking into your garden and there's just so much stuff there for you to enjoy? Right? How many of you love the weeds that come up in the garden and the life that gets choked out and all those things? No, those things, yeah, not, not very pleasant. But he comes among us as we are his orchard, his people. And by the way, precious blood-bought, right? He comes among us and he's desiring fruit from among us. He's desiring the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of repentance, the things that show that we're his. He's wanting to enjoy us. I mean, parents understand this a bit with their children, right? How many of you enjoy rebellious kids and talk back and, but how many of you enjoy the sweetness of fellowship and hanging out and, and just, and you just want to pour out your blessings upon them and, and enjoy that back and forth with them. That's what Lord's looking for. But John goes on to speak to the leaders of Israel saying to them in verse nine, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have uh, Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Interesting again, talking about stones, but he's saying, don't presume that, Hey, I was raised in a uh, X, Y, Z church, or I'm an American or whatever it might be that somehow you're right with God because of your pedigree or your status or whatever church you've gone to or not gone to, or your degrees or whatever it is. Don't presume to say that because even now, verse 10, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is what cut down and thrown into the fire. And John is bringing the heat here. Literally verse 11, he goes, Hey, I baptize you with water for repentance. That's what I'm doing. I'm I'm calling you to repent, but here's what that is preparing you for. Check it out. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry or to untie. Some of you translate, like, I'm not even, I can't even be a servant among him. He is so great. And what about him? Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. A winnowing fork is, well, we have a combine that kind of separates the wheat from the grain, but the winnowing fork, they would take the grain into, into an area and they'd have a, a winnowing fork. You take it, you throw it up and the wheat would get blown. Uh, the chaff would get blown away where the wheat kernels would fall to the floor and separate the wheat from the chaff. So he's saying the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do this with people. He's going to come to his people and he's going to separate out the wheat from the chaff. This is scary stuff. And he will clear his threshing floor and he's going to gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Listen, the Jesus that is preached, is he this Jesus or is the Jesus, is he the Jesus that we, we make him to be that we want him to be. It's the Jesus who solves all your problems and makes your life's good. And by the way, he fits the, the Jesus app. He's an app for your life. Not you are, you are surrendering to him. He's the King. Well, he comes in and he's going to clear. He said, get ready. I'm coming. He's coming. 
And the wheat are those who bear the fruit that God desires repentance. They respond to God as he comes graciously to us. And obviously they're gathered into his barn, a picture of eternal life and into his kingdom. But what is the other thing? What do you think the other part means burned with unquenchable fire? Talking about hell and Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. And this is what's being stated with the fig tree. He was coming to the capital. He was coming to the center of worship. He was coming to where all the people were supposed to come and worship him. And they're burning all the sacrifices and the things are coming up and they're doing all the right things. But guess what? That's a facade because their hearts were far from him. This is the problem with it that Israel had over and over and over again. And how many of us struggle with that? Amen. But he says he came to receive his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness. Uh, You know, it's a kingdom shown not just in platitudes, but in heart. But as he came into the city, he saw most of the people had leaves and no fruit, especially the leadership. And yes, again, there were those who loved him. Amen. Those who showed it. Yes. But what had happened within a week's time is that crowd in Jerusalem, the majority of them would turn against him and, and hand him over to Gentiles whom they hated. They would bear false witness to him and he would be nailed to a cross and mocked and beaten and scorned by the way, also prophesied exactly what happened. Read Isaiah 53 written a thousand years before Christ. So Jesus says to the fig tree, may no fruit ever come to you again. And the fig tree withered at once. This is interesting stuff. We're going to come back to this in just a second, but now, although it withered at once, the disciples did not see it until the next day. Actually, Mark tells us. So there's some timeline issues here between Matthew and Mark and Matthew's just trying to give you the big picture. Mark kind of gives some more details, but just to let you know, it was the next day when the disciples saw it because the, the tree started to wither at once when Jesus said that, but the disciples, they walk back into the city and they start, they realize it then. Then the next morning that like, man, that happened. That's where we pick up in verse 20. He says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled and said, how did the tree wither, wither at once? And Jesus then uses this opportunity to teach them once again about faith and prayer. So Jesus is not going to teach them about the heart of Israel. He's making a point there. He's going to come back to that here in parables at the rest of the chapter, but he wants to talk to them. They're marveling at how this happened. How did you do that? Well, Jesus is going to take this opportunity to not teach them about Israel. He will in a second, but teach them about prayer. Okay. Effective prayer. And Jesus answered them. Verse 21 says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Anybody have any questions? (laughs) Just a few. Let's read it again. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the disciples are marveling at this. 
And Jesus has to tell them the source of that kind of power. And he says, it's praying in faith, praying in faith. That's the source of this. That's what's happening. Now there are those who've taken this verse (laughs) and they take it totally out of context to mean that if you just believe it enough that whatever you ask of God, it will happen. That God is your genie. Do you think that's true? Who's in charge? Yeah. 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 So there's a context to all this. Flip over with me to John 15. This is a similar verse. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 15. Let's write a couple books there. John 15, one through 11, by the way, word of faith movement. A lot of these guys on TV will just tell you, you just got to believe enough. And you know, by the way, I need a Learjet and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, John 15, one through 11. Jesus is with his disciples. By the way, this is John 15 is in the last week as well of Jesus's life. And he says to them, as he's sitting around with them, I think this might be at the last supper up there. I can't remember enough. It's before after, but he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, Jesus is speaking about spiritual fruit. He's using something they would understand. And so vineyards, we have vineyards around here, right? We have a, a, you know, people who are very familiar with that around us right now. And, and he's saying that you want to have fruit in a vineyard, right? He's saying things that don't bear fruit, get cut off and things that do, they get pruned. So they grow, grow more fruit. And he's obviously using this talking to disciples with people. He's saying those of you who don't bear fruit, you're going to get cut off and burned. And that would be probably speaking directly to Judas there. Right. But those who do bear fruit, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get pruned. God is going to care for you and he's going to tend you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to love you. Why? So that you grow even more fruitful in your life. How many of you have grown through adversity? Yeah. It's one of the issues that I think is, is, you know, is plaguing America right now is we, we avoid adversity and difficulty at all costs. And we've got the technology to kind of do that. And so we, we don't grow as we should. We don't grow in all the ways that God has designed us to grow. That's a different conversation, but those who bear fruit, God's going to actually, he's going to prune your life. He's going to discipline you and you're going to grow and be even stronger and more what God's called you to be. Right? Well, he says there, you get pruned. So we grow in what God is looking for in us, a heart and attitudes that glorify him. Agape love, not a worldly love, agape love, a godly love, a sacrificial love and good works that show it and so forth. Verse three, well, how does this happen? How do I bear this fruit? How do I grow up in Christ? How do I become what he's called me to be? Well, do I manufacture that? Do I just try harder? What is it that I do? Well, he speaks to him. Number one, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Number one, you need to be clean. You can't have this unless he cleans you and he, he cleans us by the word that he's spoken to us. In other words, this is speaking about a salvation. You need to have new life. Dead 
Spiritually dead people don't produce spiritual fruit. They're dead. And we're all spiritually dead because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he sent his son that we may have life. Life came into darkness and he is here giving his life to all who would believe. So you got to be clean. How does that happen? Well, God's spirit comes to you like a wind and you start to be awoken, wakened up, whatever the word is (laughs) comes in into your life. And you begin to become spiritually aware and and there's just an illumination that happens. It's unexplainable. And, and all of a sudden you begin to see the light and and it starts to glow and he starts to speak to you about issues and your mind starts to change. And all of a sudden you come to the realization, I'm a, I'm a sinner before you. I've, I've, and that's exactly what God does. He comes and he shows us how we've rebelled against him, not to rub on our nose in it, but to cleanse us, to remove that from us. And how does that get removed? He died to satisfy his wrath. God is just, and he is love all at once. I've shared this with you before. God cannot look over, overlook sin, but he absolutely desires to cleanse us from it. How does that happen? Well, it met on the cross. God poured out his wrath upon his son who knew no sin for those who did me. That his love might pour out to us. And so the spirit convicts us of our sin. And we say, I'm a sinner. I don't care what the culture says about all this stuff. I know before you, I have done great wrong. Cleanse me, forgive me. I believe that your son died and rose again. And when that happens, when God connects that into your heart, he comes in and cleans you up a cleaning that you could never have. And you're brand new in your heart and his spirit comes and lives. You're born again. You're already clean because the word I've spoken to you is what he's saying to his disciples. Now, what do I do now that I'm a, a person who has been changed by God fundamentally? That's number one. Don't get the cart before the horse, right? You got to make it right. I think that's right. Yeah. But then verse four, how do I bear this fruit? He says, abide in me, read it, underline it, abide in me. And I, in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Jesus is saying, I've cleansed you, but I didn't cleanse you to be apart from me. You are, you have your life in me. This is what it is to be a Christian. It's to have our life in Christ. He's it. He's everything. And so abide is the same word. Does it sound familiar with another word? Abode. Make your home in him. That he's home. He's our home. You know, we live with him. We live in him. We make our life in him. We listen to him. We follow him. We're, we consider it of him. We, there's a relationship. He speaks to us, not in a weird way. Well, it'd be weird to the world outside of us. We speak to us with his word. We, my sheep hear my voice this morning as I'm talking, you know, you're, you're going, okay, he stutters and he's got issues and all that stuff. But gosh, man, God said something. You're reading a passage. And all of a sudden there's a phrase and you know, it's speaking directly to you because God is speaking to you through his word and through the preaching, the foolishness of preaching. And, and you, and you take it and you uh, go, yes, Lord, I respond to you, not to him, to you. And you changed, you're changed and you grow abide in me. Let that relationship happen. Make your life in him. Listen to him, follow him, learn from him, obey him, love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. When you wake up, when you go to work, 
in your relationships, everything. He's, he's it. He's light, like light in a room, every part of it. And again, Jesus makes it so simple for us. Either abide in me and thrive and have life or don't and die. That's kind of it. That's actually what life is about. It's about him. And again, so now here comes the clarity, by the way, I like to go off on tangents. Look at the, for the context of Matthew 21 about praying in faith. And this is important lest we get weird and become deceived and delusional in our walk with the Lord. Okay. Verse seven. If you abide in me, if you make your home in me and my words abide in you, if what I say lives in your heart, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's what he's talking about back in Matthew 21. He's not saying, Lord, I believe you want me to have the latest Ferrari. James talks about this is, you know, you pray and you don't receive because you ask a misc. And the reason why you don't get God's not answering your prayers. Cause you are spelling, you're, you're praying according to the flesh. You're praying it. So you may spin it on yourself, not according to his will. See prayer is powerful when we're accomplishing what he wants. How many of you, I mean, just put it into your own context. Say you have resources and the ability to, to do something. And someone comes to you and asks you to do something that you know is destructive for them and against something that is against your heart and your will and the way you live. Do you just go ahead and ignore all that and do it anyways? No, you don't. That's not love. And that's not truth. And God is all those things. Pray according to my will. Well, how do I know that? This is key. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. This is what we're doing this morning. This is what we're doing throughout the week. When we get together, when you open your Bibles and you're praying with one another and you talk, you're getting his word, his perspective into your life. He says, if that's happening, then ask according to my will and I will do it for you. It's important. Verse eight says of Matthew 15 says, by this, my father is glorified. This is what it's all about. His glory that you bear much fruit. You see that you bear much fruit and showing your improving yourself to be my disciples. See a disciple is one who bears much fruit. Well, how is that proven? Because we've abided and we're asking according to his will and God is answering. That's pretty cool. So if you want to have an awesome prayer life, if you want to see God move and work, find out what his will is and start asking for it to be done. Does that sound familiar? What kind of prayer did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Same principle. So the proof is in the fruit and the way and by the way, if you just keep reading John 15 verses nine through 11 later today, you're going to be blessed because he talks about loving one another and he goes on and showing the fruit of that is obedience and loving one another. And that leads to glorifying God. But so again, Jesus says to disciples there back in verse 21 and 22 of Matthew it says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith, do not, do not doubt 
You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I think I'm going to stop there. Okay. Cause there's a lot more and we get into a lot of stuff, but I'm prepared for further than that. But here's the point church in our lives. We can either be churchy Christians, all leaves, no fruit, or we can get serious about responding to the spirit of God in our lives. Surrender to him fully and say, God, I'm yours. My schedule is yours. My time is yours. My life is yours. My car is yours. My money's yours. My finances are yours. My intellect, my abilities, everything I have is yours. I'm surrendered. Your will be done in my life. That's what God desires. And here's the thing. As you give up your life, as you give it away, and that's a scary thing because that's what the world wants to hold on to. As you give it away, not talking about giving your money to me or the church. That's not what I'm talking about. Get that out of your head. As you go to God and say, it's all yours every day. Lead me. He's going to now speak to your heart. He's going to tell you where to go, what to do, how to do it as you're in his word. And you are going to have a radical, radical life. He's going to call you to do things you would never imagine. And he will do things that beyond you because you want him to do things that are beyond you. Who cares what Matt can do in his physical guitar? Great. I can get that on YouTube. It's like you want something that transcends things that you actually see God working and he's answering prayers and he glorifies himself in and through us in ways that are just absolutely fantastic. Why doesn't he do that more? Why aren't our prayers being answered? Well, I would say that sometimes and I think a majority of the time, what are we praying for? What are we asking for? Anybody stuck in the same repetitive prayer that doesn't get answered? Everybody wonder. Now there's a time to persevere. Luke 18. Sometimes we've got to go and just say, Lord, teach me. I'm going to stop praying for what I want this week. And I just trust that you've got that. I'm going to start praying for what you want. Try that this week, guys. Read the word and say, Lord, make me do this. Change this in me. Your will be done. Do this in my city. Do this in my heart. Do this in these people. And and forget about the obstacle. Just pray according to his will. Forget about the mountain. Forget about the fig tree. Forget about those things that are massive in our eyes and are nothing in God's eyes. And just pray according to his will and see if he does greater things. And when he does, don't touch the glory. Don't touch don't throw yourself into the middle of a conversation. Say, well, I hear it's just praise the Lord. That's all him and let him be glorified so that people will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Amen. It's awesome life. There is no other praying for you this week. Pray for me. Will you that I pre- I live what I preach Anyone else need that? Yeah. So let's pray and let's, let's have a, have a great week. God, you're so good. Thank you for your gracious word. And 
as we sang to you earlier and we worship you with our words, God, and the songs, I pray that we worship you with our life and actions. Have all of us this morning. Take us. Turn on the light of your life in our lives. Show us what we cannot see and help us to walk on waters like you did in this life. Whatever your will is, Lord, is what we want. Be glorified, be lifted up, magnified. Come walk around this vineyard and enjoy us as we enjoy you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Lord bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Amen.